Thanks, Yere. Would you please turn to Romans chapter 11? We've heard uh, Paul's speech. Now we're looking at one of Paul's letters. And it's great to see you here and great to know those who are beaming in as well. And one of the low points in my life was eight years ago when our family of five returned from the UK to Australia after I'd finished my PhD. Uh, we'd raised a lot of support to do the study. Uh, the plans for, were for me to get involved in long-term theological education somewhere in the world. Uh, but because of our family situation at the time, we thought it was wisest to return to Australia. And thanks to the GFC, uh, there were no jobs in theological education in Australia at the time. So we came back, zero in our bank account. We squashed in with the in-laws, lived out of suitcases for six months uh, until I became an assistant minister again, which was wonderful and worthwhile but kind of similar to where we started from. Uh, it looked very different to plan A and even to plan B. It was plan not what was supposed to happen. <laughs> now, where are you right now? Maybe you're feeling that God's purposes are hard to fathom. Maybe you're thinking, well, I came to college because I expected God to be doing something in this world and I expected God to be doing it through me. But he's not doing what I expected at all. In fact, when I look around, when I look at the, the state of our nation, our church, my own life, it looks like God's maybe doing the opposite of what I expected. And why on earth am I doing this crazy gospel ministry thing anyway? Well, in this sermon series on Romans 9 to 11, we've seen the Apostle Paul struggle with a similar question, but on a much grander scale. Paul has a serious issue with God's purposes. God's purposes for his own gospel ministry, God's purposes for his people Israel. God had promised that through Israel all the world would be blessed, but Israel's failed. In fact, their main contribution to the blessing of the world has been that they were a big demonstration of sin and judgment. Over the last two sermons, we've seen Paul wrestle with this issue, and along the way we've learned lessons in humility in Romans 9, we learn that God owes us nothing at all, and he owes Israel nothing. We can only rely on God's promise and call and mercy. In Romans 10, we learn that our ministry is about speaking, not achieving, which is what Israel failed to recognise. So here's the issue. Has God just given up on Israel? Has God just abandoned the people whom he called? Well, here in chapter 11, we see Paul's final answer in this uh, three-chapter argument. And the answer also gives us a further reason for humility in ministry. So here's the big idea. God achieves his purposes through the gospel, with you and without you. There is again, God achieves his purposes through the gospel, with you and without you. Let's begin in verse 1, where Paul raises the issue and gives the answer in a nutshell. It says, verse 1, I ask then, God hasn't rejected his inheritance, has he? Absolutely not. For I myself am an Israelite from the seed of Abraham, the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. You see, in the previous chapters, we've heard Paul's prayer, with, with the fact that he's praying with deep longing for his people Israel. And Paul says here that he himself is the answer to his own prayer. Now, what's Paul saying here? What's, what's the logic? 
I don't think Paul is just giving himself as an example of a Christian who happens to be Jewish. No, it's bigger than that. Yes, Paul is a Jewish Christian, but he's also something else, something very significant for the point that he is making here. Paul has introduced himself from the start of his letter as an apostle, the apostle to the nations, the gospel preacher. And he's saying that he is an Israelite. And it's this fact, the fact that it is an Israelite who is preaching the gospel to the world that gives hope for Israel's future. How does that all work? Well, the beginning of the answer goes back centuries to the prophet Elijah and the faithful remnant. Verse 2. Do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah as he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I am left alone, and they are seeking my life. But what does the divine oracle say to him? I have left for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So then also in the present time there has come about a remnant according to God's election by grace. And if it is by grace, it is no longer by works, since in that case grace would no longer be grace. Remember how Elijah had complained to God against Israel's apostasy, that he, Elijah, was the only one left. He was the only one holding on to God's word. But God answered him, no, Elijah, you're not alone. There is a remnant. There are those who hear and listen and worship God, 7,000 of them, complete number. And this remnant is not an accident. God has chosen them. And he's he's chosen them entirely by his grace. This remnant of God's people has always been reliant on God's grace, not working but trusting. You see here that that grace and works are, are, are put opposite to each other. These people are trusting, not working. This remnant of Israel also exists in Paul's day, a group of Israelites chosen by grace who hold on to the gospel and who preach the gospel like Paul. Paul's not alone, is he? In fact, a number of times in Romans he uses the word we when he's referring to the preaching of the gospel. And this is the first part of the answer. It helps us, doesn't it, not to fall into the trap of the siege mentality, me versus the world. Now, that kind of thinking is wrong. Even if you can't see it, God has a gracious purpose that involves others. He's doing things you might, might not even see right now. Now, of course, the remnant has a flip side, doesn't it? Because if there's a remnant, there's also others. The majority, the rest. But that's all also part of God's plan as well. See verse 7. What then? What Israel sought after, they did not attain. The elect attained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes so they do not see and ears so they do not hear, to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a fence and retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they do not see. Let their backs be bent continually. See, the rest are hardened. And so it reminds us, doesn't it, gospel ministry is not just some surefire recipe that means if you do it right and have the right technique, then people will just believe. No, belief is always by God's choosing, God's mercy and God's hardening. Now back in chapter 9, this mercy and hardening was a reason for us to realise our low position as humans before God. But now it's something else. Here it's actually a reason for hope. Because it tells us that this is about God's grace, not works, all the way down. It's not about our faithfulness. It's about God's grace and his hardening. 
And if that's the case, God can choose to remove his hardening if he wants to. It's not up to us. This gospel word against Israel, therefore, is a word also for Israel. So verse 11, I ask them, did they stumble in order that they might fail? Absolutely not. But by their failure, salvation has come about for the Gentiles, so provoking them to envy. Paul is talking here about God's complex purposes behind Israel's failure to keep the good law that God gave them. On page after page of the Old Testament, Israel's sins and transgressions demonstrate to the world that the law cannot justify or save. Israel's an object lesson for us all. Their failure highlights our sin, God's judgment. It drives us all to believe in Christ. That's what Paul has already been saying back in chapters 2 and 3 and chapter 9. Israel is a vessel of wrath. But here Paul wants to say more. Israel's not just an instrumental or vessel of wrath. No, they are God's people. And so, says Paul, God has something further in store for them. As we see in the scriptures, he wants them to be provoked to envy. As the Gentiles hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and respond, Israel is to see the Gentiles blessed and want that blessing for themselves. And that holds out hope for Israel. Verse 12, if their failure is the wealth of the world and their loss is the wealth of the nations, how much more their fulfilment? If God has used Israel's failure to achieve his purposes, how much more will he use them if they turn to Christ and trust in him? And how will that happen? Well, it's not through some special path. No, it's through the regular preaching of the gospel to the nations. Paul's ministry to the nations, to to Gentiles, to us. Do you see how Paul reacts to this seemingly devastating end to God's plans for Israel? What does he do? He doesn't go for plan B, does he? He doesn't give up on his ministry and decide that there must be some other way for, for Israel to be saved. He doesn't say, oh, the gospel's not working, so maybe I should try some other technique. No, he doesn't. He just continues his gospel preaching ministry to the nations. And he sees that though it seems weak, it is in fact glorious. He glorifies it. Verse 13, it is to you that I speak to the nations. Inasmuch as I myself am apostle to the nations, I glorify my ministry in the hope that somehow I may make my own flesh envious and save some of them. For if their loss is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be except life from the dead? And if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so also the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. See, Paul just keeps going. He keeps preaching the gospel because that gospel preaching and the salvation of Israelites is wrapped up as well in God's greater purposes through Jesus Christ, resurrection and life for all who believe. You think about the various uh, methods and pragmatic models we use in our gospel ministry today. Strategies and leadership techniques, training pipelines and marketing and communication and video and music techniques and church growth models. Now, they're all useful, aren't they? They're rightly used. They can be a great help in our task of proclaiming the gospel to the world. But sometimes, if we admit it, these methods and models can become more than that, can't they, for us? Sometimes we can gravitate to them because we're losing confidence in whether the simple preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ will work. So we we can look around for techniques, human techniques, when gospel preaching isn't getting results, the bums on seats aren't coming, 
God's clearly not working through the proclamation of the gospel, and so we glorify and magnify those other things rather than the gospel. If only we can get our team leadership skills working, if only we can get our music ministry right and give people an authentic experience of worship, if only we can do this or that, then the expected results will flow in. What does Paul do here as God's plans seem to have failed? He looks through and beyond this failure. And he sees that the preaching of the gospel is and will achieve God's purposes. Now, it's not straightforward. There's no straight line between faithful preaching and human response that Paul's talking about here. But it is still glorious because it is God's purposes. So he continues, not changing plans, not losing sight of the end, continuing to preach this seemingly foolish gospel. He is not ashamed of it. He glorifies his inglorious ministry. He trusts that God's gospel will achieve God's plans. He keeps proclaiming. He keeps saying, believe in Christ for salvation. Confess Jesus is Lord, which is a pattern for all of us, isn't it? It's a pattern for a deeply humble ministry. And it should produce humility in all of us. That's what the olive tree illustration is all about. It's designed to make us humble. Even those among whom gospel ministry has been a success. The verse 17, now some of the branches were broken off and you, though a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them and became partakers in the nutritious root of the olive tree. Don't boast over the branches. If you do boast, realise that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Correct? They were broken off by unbelief. You stand by believing. Do not be proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. See the kindness and severity of God. There is severity for those who have fallen, but God's kindness for you, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. And they too, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were broken off from a naturally wild olive tree and grafted in against nature to a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? And you think about the Bible's story, the, the nation of Israel, God's very own people whom he called and rescued from Egypt, the nation who received his word. Israel, you would think, are the people who would naturally succeed, wouldn't you? Israel are the people who you would vote most likely to succeed in receiving God's blessings and bringing God's blessing to the nations. And yet Israel fails spectacularly. So when we see Israel's failure or the failure of anyone to come to Christ or to hold fast to Christ, well, it's easy for us to be arrogant, isn't it? It's easy for us to say to ourselves, well, at least I've done the right thing. At least I've been faithful. At least I've come to trust in Jesus. At least I'm part of this saved group of people. We can be tempted to do that, can't we? When we think of the state of Western Anglicanism, so much apostasy, so much giving in to the philosophy of, of this world, swept up in the headlong rush to affirm wrong sexual practices, so many churches becoming downright idolatrous, worshipping false gods in false ways. Aren't you glad that we in Sydney have held fast to God's word? Isn't that great? Isn't it a good feeling to know that we're part of the right crowd? That we've been faithful? The faithful, Bible-believing, gospel-minded, gospel-centred crowd, that's us. We're so much better than them, aren't we? Because we haven't given in. And no, brothers, if that's your attitude, you're denying God's grace. 
Yes, we rejoice that God has graciously given us faithful preachers of the gospel, but that's not because we're great. It is all God's grace. And the story of Israel's failure is not there to make us proud. It's there, as Paul says, to humble us, to drive us back yet again to God's grace, to wonder at the fact that that, that even we, who aren't natural branches, heirs of God's blessing, have received them anyway. And there, but for the grace of God, go we. And that truth gives Paul hope. Paul shares God's plans for the nations and for Israel from verse 25. For I do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of this secret, lest you are wise in your own minds, that the hardening in part has come upon Israel until the fulfilment of the nations comes in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the Redeemer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be the covenant I make with them when I forgive their sins. Now, there's a lot of different ideas and theories about the details of what Paul means here. Who is all Israel? How will they be saved? When will they be saved? Uh, My own personal view is I don't think Paul's talking here about an end times miracle of mass conversion. I think he's describing the end result of the process of a complete number of Israelites throughout history coming to faith in Jesus and through the regular preaching of the gospel. But I also think that the details here aren't the most important thing. If we become obsessed by those details, we'll miss the point of the passage. Why is Paul saying this? He's not saying it in order to help us to speculate about God's timetable. No, he's saying it to make us humble. That's what he says. To pull down our human wisdom. God will achieve his purposes through through the gospel, both with us and without us. In fact, he'll even do it despite us and through our disobedience. And that's why Paul calls all of us back to God's mercy, Jew and Gentile. Verse 28. When it comes to the gospel, they are enemies on your account. But when it comes to election, they're beloved on account of the fathers, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you once disobeyed God, but now have been shown mercy through their disobedience, so also they are now disobedient by the mercy shown to you, in order that they too will be shown mercy. For God has shut all into disobedience, so that he might have mercy on all. Mercy here leads to humility. And mercy also leads Paul to praise. Praise for God's unfathomable purposes. Verse 33, Oh, the depth of the wealth and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unfathomable are his decisions and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his advisor? Or who has given to him and will be repaid by him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. If you asked me to sit down with a group of strategists and design the perfect strategy for the salvation of the world, I would never do it this way. Would you? Uh, Salvation through disobedience? What kind of strategy is that? And yet God has chosen to do it this way. And God's way is wonderful. And glorious, and far, far beyond anything you or I could ever dream of. Now, do you see how true theology leads to humility? And true theology leads us to praise. True theology takes us outside of ourselves and brings us to marvel at God Himself and His purposes. If your theology does not lead to humility and praise, I suspect it's because you're not doing theology, you're doing humanity. 
So think again of your own gospel ministry. Think of your own plans and visions and expectations. Has God failed to meet your expectations? Has the word of God failed? Well, that very fact should lead us to humility, shouldn't it? Now, of course, the word of God matters. Gospel ministry matters because God does achieve his purposes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But let's just remember, he will do it with you and without you. He will show mercy. He will harden. He will show mercy through hardening, even. And so our response, like Paul's, is to be this. Keep preaching the gospel and humbly praise the grace of the one whose purposes and plans are always far greater than we can imagine. So we do that now. Father, we marvel at the depth of the wealth and wisdom and knowledge that is from you. We marvel at how unfathomable are your decisions, how inscrutable are your ways. We confess that we cannot know your mind by ourselves. We need you to share that with us. We cannot be your advisor. We cannot give to you to be repaid by you. Father, make us humble and help us to continue to confess that from you and through you and to you are all things. To you be the glory forever. Amen.